Vice will be looking at the, the scripture with us this morning. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is in the New Testament. Right after 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll see four kind of short letters in there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Um, so we've been in Philippians now for the last several weeks. Philippians is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison back to the city of Philippi. Um, being written to the church there. The church is facing some opposition. Um, there's, some, there's some grumbling in the church, but there's opposition in the community around them. It is a predominantly Roman colony um, that has been repopulated with Roman veterans, soldiers from the, the Roman military. And so it's a very patriotic, very nationalistic community. And so there's some opposition to the fact that, that Paul is calling the church to have one allegiance to the king when um, Nero himself would demand allegiance and to call him Lord. And so this letter is being written um, to a church that Paul knows personally. He knows individuals there. He planted the church. We're some 12 or 13 years removed from that. But there's just a deep affection for the the people there. Um, And as he is writing from prison, ministering and pastoring to them. And so we're going to pick up this morning in verse 12 of chapter 2. And Paul writes this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may too be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service to me. And so we, we, we are reminded in, in this section of chapter 2 that this is a letter. Right, we see his interaction um, is it's affectionate that he's interacting with Epaphroditus and Timothy and himself. Right, that there's this just kind of back and forth 
that this was not written in a dry formula, right, to, to impart some basic truth. There's a, this emotional, relational connection. And he is passing on information that is important and necessary. And so if you've been with us, and if not, I, I want to try to catch us up just a little bit. Um, in chapter 1, he has made this call, and Dan preached this two weeks ago, a call to unity, right? A call to oneness. That he's like, if you're going to be able to stand against the opposition that is coming, you're going to have to be unified, and in your unity that you'll be able to be faithful and steadfast, right? So then he tells them, here's how you're going to do it. That you have to have this mindset that Jesus had. We see that in, in, in verses 3 and 4. And then in 5 through 11, he lays out the, the wonder and, and the, of the very nature of the God-man. That he was fully God, that he was fully man, that he um, did not e- expect to grasp right what he had in heaven, but that he was allowed to pour himself out. And in that, right, that he comes as a servant for our rescue. That he, he, he brings our redemption. And so he's talking about the humility of Jesus. And that God then is going to honor that name because of his humility. That we see the very character of God in this. And so that's kind of where, right. We want unity. How are you going to be unified? You've got to have the mindset of Jesus. What's the mindset of Jesus? The mindset of Jesus is humility. And then verse 12 this morning. Therefore... So because of all these things, therefore, my beloved, right, he's writing with such affection, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right, you almost see this fatherly tone here of, right, if you have children, right, there are times where your kids will obey if you're in the room, right? It's when you're not in the room. Right, well, it's a conversation we have with with our child, our kids all the time. Of like, hey, I know you know the rules, but the rules are still in play when I'm not there, right? And we're we're learning that that in my absence, I expect the same thing as I do in my presence. And so Paul is just kind of reminding them of, hey, I don't want you just to follow Jesus real hard when I'm there, like you're trying to impress me. I want you to run hard after Jesus all the time, even in my absence. And he has this strange phrase. If if you're familiar with Paul, verse 12 may throw you off a little bit. Because he says, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? This is the same guy who in Ephesians writes this in in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Right? So we're, we're like, wait a second, Paul, you've told us that our salvation is by grace, through faith, and we could do nothing for it, right? That this seems to be the, the refrain of Scripture. And yet here you're telling the church in Philippi, hey, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what is he talking about? What does it mean to work out our salvation? And, and, and maybe the first thing we need to, to define this morning is is that salvation is bigger than justification, right? So the word justification means it's, right, the old Sunday school answer, it's just as as if I never sinned. It's, It's being made right with God. And so when we think of salvation, often we stop there. Of my salvation is I'm now right with God. I'm justified. And that is a part of salvation, but it is not all of salvation, right? There's also sanctification, 
There's glorification, right? And, and so what Paul is telling them is, yeah, you are saved. But there are kind of two twin truths. There's a bit of a paradox going on here. That you are saved by grace through faith. And you are to obey. That you are to walk in obedience to Jesus. He's saying, yes, you are saved. And yes, you must do. Right? And he is not in any way feeling the need to explain himself and saying that obedience is somehow legalism. Right? We, just a couple of other passages in Scripture where we see this idea. James 2. He's talking about having faith and seeing someone in need. And so he'll say this um, in verse 17 of James 2. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works... Is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works, right? They're saying, listen, faith and works are interconnected, right? You're not saved by what you're doing, but it's a part of your salvation. We see also um, in John 10, this is verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, right? This is God working and doing, right? It's grace. My sheep hear my voice, but listen, and, and I know them, and they follow me, right? So it's like, listen, I've done something. They hear me, and what do you do? You follow. If we turn over in John, just a couple chapters, to chapter 14. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? In Hebrews, we're told that salvation, right, is those who persevere to the end, okay? And so what we're, we're seeing in Scripture is salvation is a gift. It is by grace. It is through faith. But we show that we have evidence of our salvation, that we have been brought into the family by working out our salvation, by being obedient, by living a persevering faith of being known and made in Jesus' image, Right? And so our works do not save us. Our works do not keep us saved. But our works are a necessary component right, of revealing who we belong to. It is evidence that Jesus has rescued us. And so I think often, because we want to make sure that people understand that salvation is a gift, that we can get funny about obedience. right? Because we don't want to become legalists. And legalists are those who are obedient... Because, and that's what they're looking to, to, to gain them acceptance. Like their ability to keep the laws and the rules of God is what they're going to put forth for salvation. But what, what Paul is saying is, look, you've been given salvation. Now walk in it. He ends that section in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. He says, you are the workmanship of God. You are created for good works. Walk in them. And so what Paul is wanting us to, to understand is that the order matters. Salvation comes and then we walk in faithful obedience. The faithful obedience does not gain, earn, secure our salvation, but it is a means of revealing that we belong to him. He's talking to each of us then. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why does he have this phrase, with fear and trembling? Right? Like, what are we supposed to be trembling about? If we look back as to he, this hymn that he has laid out earlier in 
Philippians 2. Look at verse 9 again. Therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? It's just this kind of big moment of exaltation because of Jesus leaving heaven and bringing redemption and bringing salvation through his life. His death and his resurrection through his humiliation and his humility that God is going to exalt him. And one day every knee will bow out of either allegiance or out of the authority. And so then he says, so I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen at verse 13 for it is God who works in you. Right. God's working in you. He's like the God that I just ex- I'm just writing about that's going to be exalted before all creation for all time. He's working in you. He's like, so you better have a little bit of fear and trembling. Right? Not that we're terrified of God, but that we are in awe. We are like, it's like, whoa. Like this God that scripture is holding up and commending, is holding up for salvation, is at work in every believer. For the good, right, of us. And for the glory of God. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. So what what happens here. Right. Is worship. That is God is at work in us. To save us. And he's at work. That we would walk in grace. So in 1 Corinthians. Paul will write this. Listen. I worked harder than anybody else. And you're like. Paul's being arrogant here. And then he says. But it was by the grace of God. That anything happened. And so when we walk in pride, when we walk in legalism, when we walk in obedience and kind of beat our chest and say, you should be like me, you should be holy like me, you should be as obedient as I am, we have misunderstood grace, that it is God who is at work in us to bring about our sanctification, to make us look more like Jesus. And so the whole, right, it's like we're digging a hole. We've been saved. We owe God a debt. And now as we walk in obedience, as we become transformed, the hole is getting deeper in our debt. Because it's by God's grace that we're even looking like Jesus at all. We're not getting closer to earning it. The, the gap is wider because it's his grace that's allowed us to, to look anything like Jesus. To put forth any effort that would please him for his good pleasure. And so it's in our faithful obedience that he is honored in worship because it's him at work in us. Right? And he has told them, listen, there's grumbling in the church. There's opposition outside of the church. And so he's going to call for obedience both within the, the body, the congregation, but also for the way that it will affect culture. So he's saying, listen, if y'all are at peace, if there's no grumbling among you, then you'll be on mission, making much of Jesus, calling people to know him. If there's grumbling and infighting, then you're kind of looking at the world and saying, hey, we don't really care what's going on out there because we have our issues in here. So he's like, we've got to get this stuff sorted out so that we can do what we've been called to. And that is glorifying Jesus in our obedience, making much of him so that it's attractive to the world that they would want to serve and know and worship God because he is worthy of even more worship. And that we would see others rescued, right, from being enemies of God and be brought into the family's adopted sons and daughters. So what does he call us to do? Look at verse 14. It's our response. 
What do we do knowing all of this now? So Paul says, do, in, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You hear, he says, do all things. Not do most things. Not do some things. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, without grumbling or without questioning. Right? We're thinking, man, we don't excel at this. Right? Grumbling. Let's, let's define it real quick as, as Scripture would. It's, grumbling is selfish complaining. Grumbling is impatience without really understanding the situation. Grumbling is an unbalanced, unfair criticism on something that's insignificant. Grumbling is purposeful unwillingness to be helpful. Right? It's all, it's kind of external behavior. So maybe you can imagine, right, you've you've had a long, hard day at work and you sit down and all you've wanted, right, is to have supper and to sit down for a second, put your feet up, have a cold drink and watch your favorite show. And your phone rings. Right? And a buddy needs help moving. Or your neighbors, right, like the plumbing has gone out and there's a flood everywhere. And they're like, we need your help right now. Right? And so what do you do on the way to help? You grumble. Right? You complain. And yet Paul says, hey, church, I want you to do all things without grumbling. Right? Like, this feels like too much. Like it's too big of an ask. How are you going to ask us to do this? How are you going to ask us not to grumble at all? The disputing or the questioning part is not the outward action. It's the internal part, right? It's, it's the thoughts of this. And he says, well, instead, what I want you to be is I want you to be blameless and innocent. Blameless is our, our behavior towards other. Innocent, again, is the, the internal, our thoughts about ourselves. It's what we understand here is we aren't blameless in this. We're not innocent. We do grumble. We do question. We do dispute. And so he's saying, listen, this is where Jesus has rescued you. And why I want you to put on the mindset of Jesus who did not, right? So listen, this is maybe a, a bit of a funny analogy, but that Jesus is in heaven. Everything's good. And now there's the call to rescue us. And it says, right, that he did not... But not seeing something to grasp that he laid down, right? The glory that he had, the privileges that he had, and that he stepped into human history to be mocked, to be humiliated, to be lied to, to be beaten, to be betrayed, to be killed on our behalf to secure our redemption and to satisfy the wrath of God. He was humble in this. He was not grumbling or questioning or disputing. And so he says, if we're going to have this mindset of Jesus, then one of the outcomes, one of the outflows is that we cannot be grumbling or disputing. Because listen, if you're grumbling against others, right, well, it's, it's, it's like you're baking something, right? This seed is growing in you to where you will begin to sin against them. You'll begin to assume everything you hear about them that's bad is true, and anything that's good about them is false. And it will begin to affect the way you feel. And then, right, like schisms and groups can begin to emerge. And before you know it, these folks are upset with these folks. And we're not really sure why, except that this guy's upset with that guy. 
And now we're dealing with that, and the world burns around us. So Paul is saying, listen, I want you to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish. And then he has this phrase, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So he's saying, as you're in Philippi, I need you to interact this way with one another so that you can minister to them who are not trusting God. Listen, he is quoting here from Deuteronomy 32, 5 and from Exodus 16. He's making them think back to the children of Israel, right, who are rescued out of Egypt. And they're, in Egypt, they're, they're taken through the wilderness, headed to the promised land, like God has rescued them by his powerful and mighty hand. And do you remember what they're doing in the desert? <sighs> God, anything to drink. There is nothing to eat, God. You have brought us out here to die. We would be better being slaves in Egypt. At least we knew what was coming. And they are, and he's like, you are a wicked. And like, I'm doing this for your good. And you're out here grumbling and complaining. Right? And, and so he, they were actually called, right, the twisted and crooked generation because of their lack of belief. And here he's saying, I want you, you have to be at peace. You have to be able to walk without grumbling so that you can minister to the twisted and perverse generation. Crooked. Because what is grumbling doing? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. You're saying, God, you owe me something that I don't have and I'm upset about it. Or it's saying, hey, God, I don't like the timing. You're not doing it fast enough. Right? It's a lack of trust in God's character. It's a lack of belief in his timing and his good. Listen, grumbling is audible discontent that you are put out. Do you remember where Paul's writing this from? From prison. He's writing it from prison. Right? Like if anyone had the right to grumble, it's like, hey, so God, I've planted a few churches for you. I'm going to be known as the greatest missionary the world's ever known. Check out the chains. Think you could do something about that? Right? Like that you would, you would go, Paul, I agree. Like, this is crazy. And yet Paul is writing with joy saying, we're not going to grumble, but we are going to have the mindset of Jesus. We're going to be humble because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we see him exulting in his circumstances because he trusts the character of God. So church, the honest truth is for us, we are in difficult circumstances for most of us in our lives right now. We are, we are, we feel unsecure, like we, we, we lack stability in health and finances. You know, we, we doubt what's going on in the world, what, what's being told is true or not. Right. And everything feels shaky around us. And so like, Hey God, we feel the right to grumble a little bit. And yet what Paul is telling us from the Lord is this, Hey church in all things, no grumbling. think I can do that. So he says, so have the mindset of Jesus. Look back at the gospel of his humiliation and his humility and what he has done on our behalf. And so he just begins to give us some examples. Look at verse 16. 
So he says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So he basically says, I don't know if I'm getting out of here. I think I am. I think that's what God's going to do. And I want to come and see you. But he says, I may be poured out. I may be martyred for the sake of the gospel here in prison. I may never get out. And I want you to know that I'm joyful. And that I'm going to rejoice. Right? And I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. He's saying we can trust God and what he is doing in this world. That his character is sufficient. That he is right and holy And just church, the mission hasn't ceased because the world is burning around us. It hasn't stopped that our call is to make much of Jesus, right? So that we, he is seen as good and holy and attractive and a treasure. And so we love one another well, and then we're on mission in a world that's not sure what they think about him, or maybe are actively opposed to him that we are sharing and we are bringing glory Because look back in verse 15. I want you to, among this twisted and crooked generation, I want you to shine as lights in the world. So he's saying, listen, you're in a patriotic, nationalistic place who bows their knee to Nero. I want you to be at peace, not grumbling with one another, so that you can be on mission. So that people will see these shining lights and come to faith. In Jesus, even if you have opposition, even if you have suffering, even if you have difficulty, even if I am poured out like a drink offering. Because what does light do? Right? You're drawn to light in the darkness. Right? When there is darkness, you go, there's light there. I can see clearly. I have comfort. I feel safety. I have security. There is clarity because there's light shining. It is, if you have been in a place that's dark and you see a little bit of light, you're like, ah, you go to it. And so he's saying, church, I want you to be this light. So how do we do this? First, we have to have a proper understanding of God's character and, and a theology of suffering. That your life is not promised to be easy. That we're not sitting here biding our time until all the things go back to normal. That he has told us, I will be with you, and I will not forsake you, and you will have trouble. All of these things are said by God, and they're true. And he says, but they they don't get the final say. I get the final say. And the final say is coming, but in the meantime, to live is Christ. To die is gain. We have, church, we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to lose. And the question is this morning is, do you believe that? Or do we try to hold on to the things of this world that are going to fade away regardless of how tight we hold on to them? Right? The one thing that lasts, the one thing that will anchor our soul is God. And so then we're called to to know what he's asked of us and to obey it. Church, our response right now is not to get hold up. Right? And go, okay, we're good. Come on, Jesus. Let the world burn around us get mad and arrogant and throw rocks back. We are to run out into the fray on mission, sharing the hope of Jesus 
while the world burns around us. Because we have security, we have faith, we have Jesus. He calls us to do it together, right? This is not a Lone Ranger mission. He says, I need you to be unified so that you can engage the world around you. That you have literally nothing to lose. And so church, one of the ways that we're going to be able to do this, especially in 2020 and moving forward, is going to be what is our appetite feeding on right now. Because listen, if your appetite is being fed on information and on news and on the lack of stability out there and the fact that the situation changes every 12 minutes, right? And what was once true is now not true. And what we told you not to do, we're not not telling you to do. And you're just like, I can't, right? I I don't know what to stand on, right? It's because things are crumbling around us. And yet we're told that we have steady ground, firm ground, right? Remember Matthew? As we went into the Proverbs, it says, The wise man and the foolish man, one built his house, the wise man built it on the solid ground, and the fool built it on the sand. And the storm came for both. We don't get to avoid the storm. But in the end, the foolish man's house is washed away. The wise man's house is left standing, and people want to know why. We have secure ground. We have steady ground in Christ to stand on. And while others' knees are buckling, while others are are wrought with fear and doubt and concern, right, that we say, we have hope. What's your hope? It's Jesus. It's not that we figure things out. It's not that we're wise or that we're better. It's that we have Jesus and he has anchored our soul. Church, we do not live in fear. We live with peace and comfort in our souls that surpasses all understanding. It would be strange for us to be a peaceful people right now. And that's the whole point. Is that Jesus has brought a new kingdom. And we're living in the midst of it. While this other kingdom is going forth in the world. But there's a day where that kingdom is going to be wiped out for all time. And Jesus' kingdom will be standing for all eternity. And knees are going to bow. We're already in it. And so we have nothing to lose as we live in faithful trust and obedience. And so he ends by giving two quick examples besides himself. He says, listen, I want to send Timothy with you, but Timothy's been really a minister to me. And so I'm going to hold off and see like if I'm going to die or get released before I send Timothy. But Timothy wants to come and he just honors Timothy for his faithfulness. He says he has put... Jesus in the interest of others above him on his own self. He's saying, listen, he has figured this out, right? That Jesus has worked this out in him. And so he is a faithful example of what I'm calling you to. And then he shows the other, Epaphroditus, who is a member of the church at Philippi, who has showed up with a gift, has ministered to Paul. And he's like, I'm going to send him back to you. You heard he was sick. Church, he wasn't just sick. He almost died. And his, his concern, it was not for his own health. It's that you've been worrying about him. And so I'm sending him back. And he's going to be able to minister to you. He's going to bring this letter. He's going to be able to tell you of my, like, what's going on. Right? Like, just honor him. He has been a faithful brother. Listen, he says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me, right? Like just in his presence. So 
So Paul says, listen, church, how are we going to stand in opposition? By having the mind of Christ that was humble. And in in that, we're going to do it with one another. We're not going to grumble. We're not going to complain. We're going to be unified so that we can be steadfast in the face of opposition. And he's like, so look, I'm in prison. Epaphroditus almost died. Timothy's going to come to you at some point. Honor these guys. Why? Because they're reflecting the image that we've been called to do in Christ. Not that they're elevated men, but that they have been faithful to be obedient to look like Jesus. And so we honor a Jesus who has rescued us. So church, this is the calling, right? And there have been times, if we're honest in our lives, where this would make little to no sense in our culture. Because things have just been super peaceful. The church has kind of been safe and elevated. And it feels like it just, it, it hits different right now. That Paul is saying to all of us, to live as Christ. Be on mission, sharing, telling, commending. And if death comes, if suffering comes, if opposition comes, to die is gain. That there is nothing this world has for us. Listen, in all the good, in all the good, there is nothing this world has for us that is better than Jesus for all time. Right? And so he's asking us to walk in that belief, in that trust. Listen. Pretty simple teaching. Just not easy. Not easy to believe. Not easy to live out. And so as a family, as a body, would we begin to ask Jesus to work this into us. That we would see him as this treasure that he is. Church, this morning, if there is bitterness and grumbling in your heart that needs to be confessed, would you not leave this morning with it? Whether you need to come to the back as we pray and sing in the end and just confess it. Whether you need to grab the person that it's with and ask for forgiveness and confess it so that the truth is in the light and it dies here today. Would you do that so that we can be unified and stand with whatever opposition may or may not come? Listen, if you are anxious and the, the, the world is running rampant over you. I would encourage you to be in the word. The word will bring peace. Like as our appetite is fed on the word of God, it will bring deep soul rest and peace. And it will be steady ground rather than the crumbling ground of the news. We need to have a greater appetite for it than the things of this world. But if you're feeling anxious, would you come back? There'll be men and women in the back that will be glad to pray for you. If Jesus has called you through this pandemic, as he's made you his and you trust him now and you believe him now, would you come tell us, right? We want to pray and and be encouraged that we have another brother or sister in the Lord that we want to stand unified. There will be men and women in the back glad to pray with you, to encourage you. Um, We're going to stand in a moment and sing to our king, right? That, That in our hearts now we would even be bowing our allegiance to him, singing true and right things to him. If the spirit is ministering to you and you want to sit, you do that. Stand, move to the back, sing. We want to respond as the king leads us this morning. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we say thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you that you have called us to hard things, to things that seem impossible and in ourselves and in our effort they are. And yet, By your spirit, by the fact that you have empowered us through your life and your death and your resurrection, because you've satisfied the wrath of God, Lord, we are not powerless. 
We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to encourage us, to comfort us, to empower us. We have your example to follow, and we want to bring good pleasure to God the Father. So, Father, would we confess where we feel weak and know that in our weakness your strength is perfected? God, would we confess where we have grumbled against one another? And, God, would we confess where we've grumbled against you? Because we don't like the cards that have been dealt to us. We don't like the timing. And we feel like hope has been deferred. God, would we trust you? Would we trust you that you know what is best for us? Would we lean into that even when it hurts? Would we find joy in all circumstances, even when there is sorrow in our life, that ultimately that we have joy? Because we've been anchored by you. And joy will have its say for all time. And our sorrow and our difficult circumstances will fade away. God, we want to say as a church to live as Christ and to die as a game. So would you work that in us? In Jesus' name.